Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forgot that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters, also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. really sure I could read the text any better than Greg did there. So we can just pack it up, close it, go home, and that's it, right? Because, I mean, the word, you know, speaks for itself. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's good to be with you this morning. If you don't know me, my name is Quentin. I'm one of the pastors here. Normally, uh, my job is to uh, take care of the music and the worship here on Sunday morning. So it's a little weird to not have a guitar and a self-standing mic, but instead to be given this, like, Britney Spears accessory thing on my face. It's a little different, so still getting used to that. It's third service, so I think I've got it under my belt now, but uh, we're making the best we can. 
Uh, this morning, we're drawing close to the end of our exile series where we've been taking this long trek through First and Second Peter this summer. And uh, we've been examining these texts for insight into how we're to live our lives today on this side of eternity. And so I want to begin this morning with a question that we've kind of asked in some different ways in the past few weeks as we've been in Second Peter. And this question, it's kind of tough to wrestle with at times, and it may bring up some emotions that are uncomfortable. It may take us places we don't want to go, but I believe it's an important question to wrestle with. If you knew that you were about to die, what would you want to say to those you loved most? If you knew you were about to die, what would you say to those you love most? Now, as we've already read a few weeks ago in the first chapter of this letter, uh, Peter knows that the end of his life is near. Uh, he's likely writing this letter from prison, awaiting execution at this time. And this letter is his last manifesto of faith to his friends, his family, his church that he calls home. And he is calling them to a steadfast faith, giving, giving them advice on how to live in those days amidst persecution, false doctrine, and anxiousness waiting for the return of Jesus. And Peter knows that while we live in this world here today, as believers, we are destined for eternity. But what are we supposed to do in the meantime? We may ask that question this way. How are we to live in light of the gospel here and now? That's a question we still ask today, and we've been wrestling through that this whole series, and every time we open the scripture, that's the question we are asking. How are we to live out the scripture today? In this third and final chapter of Peter, there's a lot to unpack, and throughout this whole letter and, and here today, we're going to see that Peter's highlighting the tension that exists in the world that just, that something doesn't feel right, uh, you know, that we've all experienced in, in some way, shape, or form. You know, we all feel the pangs of of brokenness and hurt, we can, we can tell when things just seem a little bit off in the world. Uh, for me, as, as many of you know, uh, last December, that, that offness, that brokenness and pain was, uh, was highlighted for our family with the unexpected loss of my dad to COVID complications. And my mind uh, often goes back to that last conversation I had with my dad the night before he passed. Um, we had, my wife and I were home with our five-day-old daughter, Olivia, and uh, we were talking to my parents on FaceTime. Lincoln was with them, our uh, three-year-old boy. Uh, we were talking to them on FaceTime, and my dad had been sick, and he started feeling better, and so he was up, and we were making small talk, and then Renee had gotten up to take Olivia to bed, and my dad was going to bed, and I said, hey, wait, I want you to actually get to meet your granddaughter. And so got to bring her on the camera for a minute, and they shared a moment, got to meet one another, told my dad I loved him, said goodnight, and that was it. And if I'm honest with you here and myself, there are times when I really resonate with the false teachers that are being called out in this text. I, I, I can get what they're saying because I think here's the thing, behind the, the things that they're teaching and their, and their false doctrines as we're gonna get into this, I think they're asking these questions. Why is the world so broken? I thought Jesus was supposed to be the one to come and fix all this problem, but it, it hasn't changed yet. And if he's not come back yet, when is he coming back? Can God really be real if we live in the midst of all this pain? And man, I've said those things before. I've asked those same questions. I've wrestled with that in my life. And my guess is that a lot of us in this room have. This world is a mess. We are a mess. 
Yes, we have the assurance of the eventual righting of all wrongs and the kingdom of heaven coming, but we live in this already not yet here and now moment where that's not full reality. So how are we to live in the light of the gospel here and now? Open your Bibles with me to 2 Peter chapter 3 if you're not already there and uh, let's get to unpacking together. So we've already heard the text read, so I'm not gonna chuck back through the whole thing, uh, but we're just gonna kind of pick apart and walk through what Peter says to us here. And it kind of divides itself pretty neatly into five little sections, but right out of the gate, in verse one, I wanna call our attention to one little tiny word uh, that in your Bibles probably is translated beloved or beloved. That word in the Greek is agapetos, which means unconditionally loved people. It's got a root word in agapeo, which was often thought of as this deep love between God and man, you know, the kind that only God could show. So Peter is using this word, reminding the church how loved they are by God. And I've got to imagine that as, as Peter's writing this, his mind is probably wandering back to that conversation with Jesus on the beach so many years ago where the disciples are all gathered around after, you know, the resurrection and uh, Jesus is sitting there and he, he looks at Peter and he says, Simon Peter, do you love me? Same word, do you love me? And Jesus was challenging Peter in that moment and now I believe Peter is challenging the church to remember their identity in Christ, to remember that they are more loved than they could imagine. And when you think about this, it's kind of a shift because in his first letter, anytime he gave us this identity language, it was often exiles, foreigners, strangers, you know, where we got the name for our series that we're walking through right now. And I think here at the end of Peter's life, as he's, as he's leaving the church, he wants them to know that though they are exiles, though we are strangers and foreigners, though this is not our home, we the church are not forgotten. We are loved. So Peter refers to his audience as beloved four times in this chapter alone, which I think is significant. And so now as we get into this concerning false teachers, Peter begins by reminding his readers that, you know, this is kind of all expected and predicted at different times. And starting in verse three, he says, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Then verse four says this, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So they're leading people astray because they see the issues in this world, these false teachers, they see all these problems and they're like, well, nothing's changed, you know, ever since the times of our ancestors and our forefathers, like we're still living in a bunch of mess. So God's obviously not coming back and he obviously doesn't care and doesn't intervene with what's going on. So who cares what we do? Because of their belief in this, because of how they've shaped their belief, it leads to some pretty messed up ways of living, you know, including but not limited to things like sexual immorality, drunkenness, greed, all these crazy parties uh, that they were having in their culture at that time. You know, and this is kind of a good place actually to hit pause and talk about uh, two really churchy words that you may or may not have heard in your time in church or if this is your first, uh, first day here and you want some really big words that you can drop with your family at the lunch table on what you learned today, here you go. These are free of charge. Uh, first, you have this word, orthodoxy which orthodoxy is simply right belief. Orthodoxy is right belief. And so for us, as a church, we develop good orthodoxy by studying the scripture alongside the tradition and history of our church. These things inform our head knowledge and shape our heart beliefs. And then out of that orthodoxy, we get this other big fancy word, orthopraxy, which very simply means right living 
or right practice. Our head knowledge, our heart beliefs inform our hand and feet actions. Makes sense? Makes sense. Quick, simple example of, of how this might play out in, in a way in your life. Anybody, uh, you know, coffee drinkers, avid coffee lovers, coffee fans, anybody, uh, French press people, where are my French press people at? Anybody at this service like French press? Got a couple over there? Okay, so I, so I graduated to a new level of posh a few years ago with my coffee uh, consumption in buying a French press. It's like, you know, the, the fancy frou-frou coffee stuff that you can make and, on your own. And I really love just good, rich, deep cups of black coffee. And so I thought when I first got this French press that I, uh, you know, all I had to do was grind up the beans, put it in there, put a bunch of water in and just sit and let it soak as long as I could to get all of that good, rich flavor out of the beans. And every once in a while, you know, I'd end up with a pretty good cup of coffee, but on the normal, I was just getting a lot of like real bitter, real strong, like not, not great. I didn't really know anything about how coffee beans worked at the roaster level. And so my good friend Trent kind of set me straight, used a bunch of big fancy words that I don't know all of what they mean uh, when it comes to coffee roasting, something about sours and bitters and the way that extracts work in the beans. Anyway, found out that really you should only need, depending on your grind, give or take, you should need about six minutes to let your French press brew, which was way shorter than I was doing with mine. So I decided to give his way a try. And sure enough, after some tinkering and figuring out, you know, grind, uh, coarse and fine, getting it all like dialed in just right and then letting it steep for the right amount of time, ended up with some much more flavor-filled cups of coffee. Orthodoxy in shapes and forms are orthopraxy. I had bad orthodoxy about how coffee worked. Therefore, I had bad cups of coffee that came out of it. Now that's a really simple kind of silly example, but we can see that just some very small missteps in our beliefs and in our understanding of who God is can cause us to end up with some really kind of messed up theology and orthopraxy. For example, poor orthodoxy around freedom and grace can lead us to live lifestyles that look no different from those who profess hope in Jesus. Our lives would be filled with selfishness, greed, drunkenness, pride, sexual immorality, and more. Poor orthodoxy around human identity as the imago Dei, the image of God, can lead us to persecute those who look or think differently than us, including racism, sexism, sexism, domestic abuse, and more. And poor orthodoxy around marriage and our relationships can lead us to places filled with distrust, hurt, spousal abuse, and marriages that do not reflect the kingdom of heaven. So now back to our text, the false teachers, they've got wrong beliefs about how God works and how he has created and ordered the world and it's informed some pretty bad practices in their world. So now to change their practices and to defend the church, to guard the church from these same practices, Peter has to reshape our beliefs and reshape these false teachers' beliefs. So Peter pulls his audience back to the story of creation, reminding them that God does intervene and he is at work. So let's see what he does here in verse five. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by, or out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So here he's referring to the story of Noah and the flood, which you've, you've heard that before and you basically know that there was this big flood and God just basically hit a big old reset button on the world because things had gotten so bad. So the reality is, as Peter is reminding his audience, is God can and does intervene whenever he wants, 
When he sees a need, when, when humans get too far off track or when God is ready to move, he moves. God spoke at creation. Mountains moved, waters formed, skies lit up, breath entered into the lungs of every living creature. And you and I, the very image of God, came into being because God spoke. The church then needed this reminder that God is alive and active in that day, and we need it today. In the face of a rising culture then of Gnosticism and the gospel of self-truth and self-wins in the end, they needed this, this stark reminder. And I think you know some of those things about self and self-truth and the gospel of self, that can ring true today. We need this reminder that the word of God is powerful and unchanging. The spirit of God is alive today. And so Peter closes this section of text in verse seven with this kind of chilling reminder. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Ooh. Get you. Can you feel the, the angst and the passion kind of building in this text? Like Peter knows his last day is coming and he's not pulling any punches or any qualms about the fact that there is a day of judgment coming. Now, if you're anything like me and you read these, these kind of fire and brimstone passages, they can make you feel a little uneasy and make you start to kind of go, ooh, like, I mean, I don't believe her in stuff, but have I really been, have I been good enough? Like, am I, am I more godly than ungodly? Like, where do I, where do I kind of stand in here? You know, as, as believers, as a church, it's those moments we need to kind of pause, take a breath, and remind ourselves of two things, that Jesus' grace is sufficient for you and I, and that because of that grace, he has called us to challenge ourselves where we might be missing the mark and do better. And that's where Peter's gonna head with this. So again, how are we to live in light of the gospel here and now? So Peter continues, we get to verse eight, uh, verses eight through 10. This is uh, what I'll call like the theological crux point of this passage. This is where things kind of turn and Peter gets really practical for his audience, but this is kind of the, the, the point where everything flows out of. And if, uh, if you're Sean Green, the great theologian Sean Green, he coined this the ooey-gooey theological center. He used that phrase one time and I love it. And so that's what we have right here in verses eight through 10. So I'm gonna read verse eight and nine right here. So uh, this is verse eight and verse nine will be on the screen. Uh, but do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And then here's, here's the meat. Here's the, here's the real good stuff. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as, as some have counted slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, we can't fully understand God's timing and how he works because our, our understanding of time is very limited and finite to like what's right here in front of us and what we've experienced. And God exists outside of time. It kind of sounds like, you know, maybe the inspiration for Loki came right here. But, uh, but Peter offers an explanation uh, that brings some clarity and some understanding to how we are to take that and live with that. You know, that God's perceived slowness at bringing all things to creation is actually his love for creation. Now, I can imagine that if, uh, if Peter were actually speaking this to a live audience instead of writing this, you know, if he were teaching and then scoffer stood up and started, you know, kind of stirred up the crowd and was like, well, God's slow, he's not coming back, all this stuff, like Peter, I think, would kind of stop and look at him and say, now listen, God's not the slow one here. You are. 
He's waiting on you to get your acts together because you keep messing it up. So uh, let's, let's step it up a little bit here, church. You see, God knows what's coming. He knows the judgment that is in store for creation. He doesn't want anyone to face that alone. So his patience is actually full of his grace because he is giving each and every generation the chance to come to repentance, to know him, and to accept the work of Christ on the cross. And you know, these words about patience and grace, they, they get even more powerful when you stop and realize who's writing these words. Peter is the guy who denied even knowing Jesus. Peter is the guy who got out of the boat to walk on water and sank and Jesus had to pull him out. Peter, the guy who Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. You know, if, if I were Jesus, I'm just saying, if, if I were Jesus and this was one of my disciples and I'm thinking, I'm looking for the guy to build my church upon, you know, Peter the rock, build his church upon, he said that to him. I, I may have like stopped a long time ago and went, look, Peter, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm trying to do something here, you know, whole kingdom of heaven thing. Like you're just, you're not quite where I need. I need somebody a little less needy, a little less faithless and kind of shaky. Uh, sorry, next. But Jesus desired Peter's heart. He saw the potential in Peter. He was patient with him, changed his name from Simon to Peter, called him the rock. God's patience is the manifestation of his grace towards us. So in the time while we wait for the new heavens and new earth, we've got some work to do. And in verse uh, 11 through 13, uh, this little section here calls back to verse seven where he kind of gave us that chilling reminder about judgment. So this sets up again that judgment and what we're supposed to do with that. So in verse 11, he says this, since all things are thus to be dissolved, since the judgment is coming, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Now today we might kind of phrase that section of scripture this way. We might ask this question out of that. How are we to live in light of the gospel here and now? So Peter's given us this framework. We're, we're kind of coming to the practical bits here. Peter's given us the, the right orthodoxy, the right beliefs around creation, God's patience and his grace, and the new creation hope that we have. And next week we're gonna spend, that whole morning is gonna be all about new creation, heaven, new earth, all that stuff. So we're gonna stay focused for today. We're gonna stay focused right here on the, on the here and now, how this affects us here and now. So in light of that hope, in light of all this, what is our right orthopraxy because of everything Peter has given us. Do we just simply sit in our pews, come to church on Sunday, sing a few songs, listen to a few sermons, you know, crack open the scriptures a few times a week and make sure that we're, we're staying up on our head knowledge? Is that what we do and we just wait for you know, judgment to come and God to take all the Christians off the burning rock? Is that what we do? No. No, Peter gives us some clear charges and all of scripture gives us a clear mandate. So let's look at Peter's words in verse 14. He says, therefore, beloved, there's that word again, agapetos, my unconditionally loved, beautifully messy church. Therefore, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and be at peace. So right here, he lays out very simply some practical things that his readers need to do. What living lives of holiness and godliness mean. Be without spot or blemish which we know we've all messed up and have spots and blemishes, so we need to accept Christ and to repent of our sin, not, not continue to live in sin anymore 
and then be at peace. Be the non-anxious presence because of the hope we have in Jesus. Be the non-anxious presence in a world filled with anxiety. He then goes on to remind them that people are gonna continue to twist and distort scripture and that if the church is not careful, it's gonna get swept away right along with the bad theology current. And so to defend against that, to fight against that current, Peter's closing words to his readers are this. In verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, that word grow, it implies that there's movement, that you're always moving, you're never stopping, always changing, always understanding more. And what are we to grow in? Knowledge and grace. We might say that today as grace and truth. Grow in our orthodoxy, our understanding of truth, of knowledge, and grow in grace, our orthopraxy, that truth lived out. You know, it kind of, it makes me think of riding a bicycle. Um, to, uh, back in 2017, my wife and I moved to the city of Portland, Oregon to help be a part of a church plant there. And when we got there, we lived fairly close in the central city, so very urban context, so we downsized to one car. So I bought a bike, and that was my uh, method of getting around the city for two and a half years. And I loved it. Still love taking it out for a cruise today. And uh, one of my favorite uh, pastimes on the weekends or when I had free time would be just to hop on my bike with no destination in mind and oftentimes would end up just riding around this inner city loop down by the riverfront, just taking in the scenery and the beauty. And on each side of the river, there were some good straightaways, uh, pretty flat and, you know, mostly, you know, easy to ride on where, and after about a year of, of biking and, you know, feeling pretty confident in my own skills, you know, I'd get on those straightaways and I'd kind of sit up nice and tall and slowly just kind of let go of the handlebars and just balance and keep on cruising like, yeah, I'm good at this. Now, what happens to a biker not holding onto the handlebars when you hit a rock, a tiny rock, or somebody runs out in front of you, or any of that stuff? You guessed the end of the story, yes. Uh, more than one time that happened. And even just, there'd be times where I just, I'd sit up and just kind of take one hand off the handlebar, but you know, something happens out of your control, you hit a bump, the sidewalk changes, somebody runs in front of you, and no hands on the wheel or just one hand on the, on the handlebars, like you end up flat-nosed on the sidewalk, and then you stand up real quick and go, well, everybody had their eyes closed, right? Nobody saw that, I'm, I'm good, right? No. But you see, our, our spiritual life is, is like that. We need both grace and truth to grow and navigate in this world. Take your hands off completely, we can obviously see where that ends up. But even just one hand on the handlebars for too long, lean too hard to one side or the other, and you're gonna fall off. You see, all grace with no truth leads us to look no different than the world we've been set apart from, as we said earlier. And all truth with no grace leads us to where the judgment that Peter has written about, all that destruction and stuff, without grace, that falls squarely on our shoulders. The world needs both grace and truth. We need both grace and truth. As we grow in our understanding of God's truth, good orthodoxy, and God's grace, right orthopraxy, we can be the witness to this world that God needs. To take this bike analogy a step further, uh, Michael Green, a biblical scholar and commentator, says it this way. The Christian life is like riding a bicycle. If you stop moving, you fall off. About sums it up. To grow in knowledge, to grow in the truth of God's word, is to study his word. 
We learn in community to submit to the teaching and leadership of the local church to be discipled by one another. Now, if, if all of your knowledge, if all of your truth study, if all of your growth is happening by yourself, there's a strong chance that at some point, again, you're gonna take these little steps and you're gonna end up off course somewhere. We need community. You need to do this in community for the accountability that comes with it. To grow in the grace of Jesus is to experience the messiness of ordinary, everyday life. To wade deep into the tension of the already not yet reality of our world and to bring Jesus to a hurting world. And again, you cannot grow in grace in isolation. It's impossible. Grace does not work that way. It is practical, it is tangible, needs to be felt in people. And that's why the church, this space is so beautiful because let's, let's be real. We're all gathered here because we unite under the word of God and, his, and the hope we have in the cross. But in any other context, not knowing one another, I mean, there's all kinds of different worldviews, political views, just ways of life. Everything is represented in this room, this, this diversity that is beautiful in humanity. But if, we, if you met some, some of you, if you met in this room without Jesus and without the church, you might not like each other very much. That's just the reality of the world. The church is a place and the crucible in which we grow in our grace towards one another and our understanding of God's love for us. And so as we close today, uh, Michael Green also had this to say about this passage of scripture. And now specifically here, this quote, he was referring to verse nine, which was that ooey gooey crux point of our text about the Lord's patience. He says this, the logical corollary of this verse is that Christians should use the time before Advent, the second coming of Christ, to preach the gospel. You know, I have to imagine that as Peter's life is drawing to a close, as he's nearing that finish line, for the past 30 years of his life since Jesus left the earth physically, those final words that Jesus spoke to him in the flesh have got to still be just ringing in his ears. And we find those words in Matthew 28 where it says, go, Make disciples, baptize, teach, and I will be with you. So now here in Peter's second letter, in his own words, he's leaving that same charge before the church. We aren't meant to hoard our knowledge and to be selfish with our grace. We're meant to share it. The mandate of the entire biblical narrative is very clear. That as Christians, we are to be the heralds of the kingdom of heaven. So how do we live in the light of the gospel here and now? How do we be the heralds of God's coming kingdom in the already not yet reality that we live in? I think there's three very simple things that we can sum up from our text. One, we talked about repentance. If you don't know Jesus, or if you do know him, and there are things weighing on your heart today that you need to surrender to Christ, today is a great opportunity to take that first step or that next step. I'll be down front over here. Sean will be down here. We'd be happy to pray with you, talk with you, whatever that looks like. It's time. And the second thing, as Peter said earlier, is to be at peace, to be a people of peace in the midst of an anxious world, to trust in the hope that we have in Christ enough to, to let peace rest on us. And finally, we're called to share those things, that hope, that peace, that grace. We share that with the world. We proclaim his goodness. 
So I want to invite you to stand as we, uh, as we close this morning. And I want to leave us with this benediction that, that comes from Peter's words this morning. May we know and experience the patience and grace of Jesus in our lives. May we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. May we share that good news with the world, making disciples, baptizing, and teaching. And may we remember that no matter what culture we live in, what the political climate is, no matter the hurt and the pain that we feel in this world, or the hurt and the pain that we've caused, no matter how long we wait for the fullness of God's kingdom, Father, Son, and Spirit are with us for all time, always. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the words that are preserved in these texts. God, the, the truth that is illuminated to us. God, we, we thank you for your word. God, and we thank you for the hope and the grace that comes through the reality of the cross that we can stand forgiven today before you. And Lord, I pray that as, as we have trekked through these two powerful texts of First and Second Peter, and as we're, as we're drawn to a close here, and as we've been asking ourselves the question of how we live out the gospel in today's world, God, I pray that you give us the strength and the courage uh, to stand strong in your truth and in your word, God, but to love this world ridiculously the way that you love it. God, you've called us to love one another, and you've called us to be light to this world. So God, give us the strength, give us the wisdom to walk for however long we are here, whatever, whatever time allows us, However long your patience carries us in this world, God, may we, may we trust in you, may we lean in you and your spirit. In your name, amen. Let's worship together. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.